Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the sophisticated film nerd. Now that we've reached a fifth instalment, this is more of a franchise than a series of sequels, where all the episodes are part of a carefully planned arc in a shared universe, and each part links with the others in a grand plan. That's if it's a franchise like Marvel. If it's a franchise like DC, it's more like a thudding Frankenstein's monster of patched together decomposing crap that doesn't make a bit of sense. How good a franchise is for you to judge, not me, but in that spirit, perhaps you could keep an ear out for a post-credit sequence teasing what's coming in the next episode. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. If you want to comment on the podcast, or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, there's a number of ways you can reach out. I'm on Twitter on at filmanorex 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to my profile. There's also an Instagram for the podcast with the same title as my Twitter handle and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. As ever, the podcast includes a number of different features for you to dig into and enjoy and keep you company on your exercise, car journeys or even your train to work if you're one of the few who's doing that again. And as ever, the podcast is split into two halves or two reels, if you will, allowing you to take an intermission between healthy portions of nerdy film content. There's a bit of a 1990s feel to the episode this time, as most of the main features involve films that were made or they tried to make during that decade. As many of the films we're discussing are uh, either set in the 21st century or they're commenting in some way on the near future in which we now find ourselves. Here's what's coming up in this episode of the podcast. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, including a trip to the IMAX to see a new film release, namely Christopher Nolan's much-anticipated and much-discussed Tenet. Then it's time for a look at a classic or more worthy film from my list of what I've been meaning to make time for instead of watching the same old stuff on TV. This month it's David Cronenberg's incredibly controversial film, Crash. Then the special guest interview with my son James Adamson. This time the Adamsons will be discussing the long-running feud between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, which opens out into a discussion of diversity more generally in Hollywood, and which then opens out even further into some of the issues of race relations facing society today. My hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Catherine Bigelow's underrated masterpiece, Strange Days. And in the one that got away, I cover an intriguing story about a film that never got made that I wish we'd got the chance to see. This month, it's Japanese legend Akira Kurosawa's The Mask of the Black Death. To finish, we have a remake, Hate Watch, which for this episode is the notorious 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. But first, some messages from listeners via the podcast magazine letters page. Mickey V, again, nice stuff in episode four. Agreed with your comments on Apocalypse Now, and it's a shame Coppola lost the battle over length and politics. I don't remember being shown a single film at school, although I like that as a subject idea, and I envy you being shown Diva, which I remember is very stylish. For comparison, I was part of a student occupation of a college in 1972, and to keep the troops happy, we showed some films. One choice was Peter Watkins' interesting director, Punishment Park, and it freaked people out so much loads of people went home so the occupation collapsed. Keep up the good work and don't scare the horses. Daventry Cat enjoyed the appreciation of Angel Heart and fully agree that everyone should seek it out. Perhaps a mention of the excellent and effective soundtrack would have been useful. I enjoyed the old blues tracks and felt that the Courtney Pine elements, which if I remember correctly were recorded whilst he played along while watching the movie, Really added to the atmosphere. Thank you, Daventry Cat, and sorry for not mentioning it. Phil2U has got a couple of obscure film recommendations. He says, if you haven't seen them already, consider Only Lovers Left Alive and Adam's Ebler. 
And one for your son. He said he doesn't usually enjoy Shakespeare adaptations, but get him to sit through Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, the 1989 version. Awesome movie. Thanks for that as well. Davy C says, Make Crash your next film in the classic feature. It's an amazing film. It manages to make you an observer and detaches you totally from any emotional involvement with the characters. It's the least arousing sex scenes ever, all surface and artifice, despite the very physical and kinetic nature of the plot. However, you do get to see Holly Hunter's foof. It's a very pithy review there. Thank you, Davy C. John on the DMs recommended I watch Midsummer and Hereditary, which I haven't got around to yet. Ari Aster is a modern horror genius, he says. Okay then, on the list they go. Also had some discussions on the socials around Tenet and the suggestion that it may take repeat viewings for it to make sense. From Flash Gordon, films that reveal a deeper layer on the second watch are brilliant and usually known as a master of this, for example Interstellar and Inception. But the thing with those films is your first viewing is not spoiled. I don't think Tenet earned the right to a second viewing because its story wasn't good enough or fleshed out well enough. Maybe the ideas aren't important to the director, or even some of the fans who just wanted to see spectacle and effects. But it didn't work for me. Shambo is more on board with the idea of a film that's hard to follow, using the example of Primer. That's one I enjoyed, he says, even though it's hard to follow. I also enjoyed watching it a second time with a written explanation of what was happening so I could follow it. Rain Dog offers up one David Lynch uh, classic as an example. I don't think I've ever gotten to the bottom of a razor head, but it's still compulsive viewing. I Stand Alone, interesting username, mentioned Lynch's Mulholland Drive and Hitchcock's Vertigo. And Vertigo is an interesting example. I didn't like that first time, but love it after repeat viewings. It was a common theme though. Tenet has divided audiences and a lot of people have found it hard to follow. Thupa One came up with, I enjoyed it, but did I fuck follow it? Was clinging onto its coattails and then gave up and just enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, what it is, I'm not sure I could entirely describe. What is interesting is that the examples people have come up with films that were hard to follow and required repeat viewings were all independent films, so it's unusual to see Nolan trying this sort of thing in a massive blockbuster. That's all from the letters page. Thank you all for your comments. On with the show. And now for the regular roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd. With the gradual easing of lockdown in the UK, there started to be more opportunity to get out of the house to watch a film, and this month includes the massive excitement of a trip to the cinema to see a new release. As for film news, most of the headlines tended to be about releases being delayed or whether some of the big productions can start filming again. The one big news story I wanted to mention was the sudden and terribly sad news about Chadwick Boseman, who passed away at the end of August. This was quite a shock as he kept his battles with cancer entirely private. My son and I had already recorded a piece for this podcast discussing Black Panther briefly, which was before that news was announced, hence why we didn't mention that news at all. Uh, and really, it, it's hard to get your head around. Although he's been around a few years and has a decent body of work, it felt like his career as a movie star was just getting started, and many people have gone straight from wondering what his next film would be to hearing about his death. He will, of course, be missed by fans of his work and as well as his friends and family. Uh, so... Other than that, my month in the world of film, apart from preparing great podcast content for my marvellous audiences, revolved around these films that I've watched. First, The Osterman Weekend. This is the final film by legendary maverick Sam Peckinpah, and it's a spy thriller based on a novel by Robert Ludlum, who wrote The Bourne Identity. I've been looking for a decent Blu-ray copy of this for years, and finally found one. It's not seen as the director's best or the best Ludlum adaptation, but I've always had a soft spot for this film. It's an exciting, twisty, turning spy thriller, 
with some action scenes, car chases and sex and violence, exactly what a young guy like me was looking for in the 80s when this came out. It's the kind of trashy film I love to get my hands on in the video rental store as a youngster in the 80s. Younger listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but scouring the shelves for the video box promising all sorts of illicit thrills on the cover was a formative part of my early years as a film nerd. In honour of this, here is my impromptu top 10 of ultimate 1980s home video classics. This ranges from trashy B-movies, martial arts and horror, to camp classics, but all of them are films you couldn't wait to rent time and time again. In no particular order, Highlander, Ruthless People, Flash Gordon, Who Dares Wins, Reanimator, Escape from New York, Cobra, Commando, Revenge of the Ninja, and Roadhouse. I also watched Marriage Story on Netflix. I mainly tuned into this because it did quite well in awards season and for the great cast. It showed the breakup of a marriage between an arty theatre director and his movie actress wife, inspired by the director's own experiences to an extent. It was very good, uh, very kind of true to life, at least for people in that particular socioeconomic group. My wife thought it was a bit depressing, but I thought at least it showed people dealing with real life uh, issues and trying to come out the other side. Then I saw Mother's Day because my wife had it on TV one Sunday. Lee said the better because it was absolute shite. I'm sure it was intended to be a tribute to mums everywhere in its little rom-com style ensemble of different but linked stories, but jeez, what a pile of crap. Next year, my present to my mum is I won't force her to watch this garbage. I also watched Kagemusha again on Blu-ray, partly as research for a feature in this episode, but also just because I fancied watching it. I prefer Ran of the two late career Kurosawa epics, but this is still great, with all the things you love Akira Kurosawa for. It's about a thief in medieval Japan who's about to be hanged when someone notices he's the living image of the local shogun warlord. They employ him as a double just to make appearances when needed, but then the lord is killed in the middle of a war and they need him to step in and actually live as the lord. Great stuff, highly recommended. I then streamed Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island to Dr. Moreau. This was mainly research for this podcast, but it is very good if you like uh, making of documentaries that lift the lid on films that had a trouble production. It's not as good as the one they made about Apocalypse now, but it is worth a watch. Then as a Saturday night treat, once the baby was asleep, uh, my wife and I watched Mission Impossible Fallout. Watched this loads of times now after catching it at the IMAX when it came out and buying the Blu-ray and always love to see it again. The Mission Impossibles are maybe our favourite big franchise and they've been getting better and better each time ever since MI3 came out. In my humble opinion, the last couple of films have even been better than the recent Bonds. Uh, we also caught up with Creed 2 on Netflix. I hadn't actually seen this before, despite really liking the first Creed film. It took me a while to get around to watching uh, the second one. I enjoyed it, although not quite as good as the first uh, instalment. Um, the stuff where Ivan Drago comes back with his son as the next challenger for Adonis Creed and all the family history, that was actually quite good. And uh, the ending was good as well. So, yeah, enjoyed it. I think if you like the, the rest of the, the Creed and Rocky films, you'll, you'll enjoy that one. Uh, and on one Sunday night, uh, back to the trusty channel hopping until you hear ITV4 and are inevitably showing a Bond film. This time it was The Living Daylights. Uh, I enjoyed this even though I've seen it dozens of times. Timothy Dalton is my favourite Bond. And the films he did were definitely improvement on late era Roger Moore. Um, although the people making the film were the same ones responsible for Octopussy and A View to a Kill. So the action scenes were a bit cheesy. Uh, still enjoyed it though, can't beat a bit of Bond. And then the big one, off to the IMAX to see Tenet. I'd had a couple of dress rehearsals for this, going to the IMAX to see screenings of The Dark Knight and Inception. Uh, but this is a new one, this is the new Nolan, this is a new release at the cinema. The anticipation levels for this film have been enormous, as so many other cinema releases in 2020 have been delayed or cancelled, and because it's the new Christopher Nolan film. 
The trailers and limited details that we'd seen had very much whetted my appetite for another mind-bending blockbuster. Some of the wording about it had been it, it promised to do for the spy film what Inception did for the heist film. Um, so lots of anticipation. At the same time, a bit of nervousness because what if it doesn't live up to expectations? And I had, of course, been disappointed a little bit by Dunkirk. And so, mask on, drive to the retail park for an evening showing. Um, I was so anxious about missing the start that I skipped the long queue at the snack counter, wishing I'd brought a bottle of water now, but straight in, take my seat. Um, looks like the cinema had sold out within social distancing restrictions, but it was all safe and far enough away from other people. And then the film started. From the beginning, you're thrown into the kind of Nolan-esque world of striking visuals and bone-crunching action that you've come to expect. The protagonist, as he's called, is a CIA agent trying to prevent an assassination in somewhere like Estonia at an opera house. Heavily armed attackers burst in, but there's something strange and off. From there, it's a very complex plot made hard to follow by a disorienting soundtrack, which a lot of people have criticised. But basically, there is a technology that enables people to run backwards through time. But they are literally going backwards, uh, and they try to influence the past while coming into conflict and contact with people that are moving forwards. The mission is to prevent a plot hatched in the future to do devastating damage to our present, and uh, by going backwards and forwards through time, intervening and sometimes going back again over th things you've seen before or things they've done before. Uh, and because the enemy and even some of your allies can be going backwards and forwards at the same time, it's mental all over the, you know, my mind was all over the place. I had to concentrate really hard to follow it. As you can see, it's not that easy to put into words what you're watching. There's lots of really fun uh, Easter eggs that you can look into, uh, you can maybe pick up second time around. In the main, you're just kind of on the edge of the seat trying to trying to follow it, trying to see if it's all going to click together. Um, I, I loved it. I found it really gripping and thrilling. I, I mean, I, I think I followed it pretty well. Uh, I know some people didn't and that, you know, sort of pissed them off. I intend to go and see it again, though, as I think I'll pick up more second time around. I've heard people say that on the second watch, everything sort of clicks together the way it does for the characters in the story when they go through a situation once and then return to it again when their future self knows more about what's going on. So this is really high concept stuff. It hasn't gone over that well with everyone, but it's certainly very ambitious and different and it's going to be a big talking point in film for a long time to come. It's also added a bit of Nolan-esque time entropy in my house uh, as the baby has learned to crawl, but he only goes in reverse. I look up and there he is crawling backwards across the floor like he's going the other way through time. So that's fun for a nerd like me. What has struck many people is how uh, there's a lot of resemblances between this film and an episode of Red Dwarf, the TV show, uh, called Backwards. So uh, just for fun, here are the main ways the new Tenet film is like that Red Dwarf episode. One, one of the main characters is called Cat. Two, there are people going backwards while other people go forwards. Three, a character starts to feel the injuries of a fight they haven't had yet. Four, for some reason, it's very important to be dressed in extremely sharp suits at all times. Five, a character mistakes someone speaking backwards for them speaking an East European language. Six, at a key point uh, in the film, a sign is spelled backwards. And finally, at number seven, Robert Pattinson says, Oh, Smeg, at a crucial moment in the story. I lied about the last one. Now for the feature where each month I try and look beyond the narrow range of cinematic comfort food being offered up on the main TV channels at some more interesting and potentially great films I haven't got round to watching. As tempting as it is to stick to old favourites and hard as it is to get over the mental block or embarrassment of the great film you bought a decade ago which is still in the shrink wrap, 
It's worth it just to keep experiencing new and different films. I have a list of titles I need to get around to watching and have found that by committing myself to watching one a month, I'm gradually breaking down that mental block. Not only that, I'm getting to see some great and interesting films, and what's better than that? Hopefully listening to this uh, feature over previous episodes has inspired you to watch some of these films or to seek out those movies you've been putting off watching yourself. So far the films I've crossed off my list are Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Les Diaboliques and Let the Right One In. The rest of my list looks like this. Das Boot Extended Version, which still hovers in a special OCD limbo between me filing it under D or B. Wages of Fear, David Cronenberg's very controversial film Crash, Korean zombie film Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, the Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, CSA, The Confederate States of America, and a couple of recent editions recommended by listeners Short Bus and A Tale of Two Sisters. I am paying attention to the range of excellent recommendations some of you have been making and will keep adding to the list over time. This month I took notice of a listener who highly recommended David Cronenberg's Crash with the pithy review that I featured in this month's letters page. I have to admit, without a push from anyone, this is a film I might have left until last. It's not so much squeamishness or being put off by the controversy that surrounded the film on release, as those haven't put me off other movies that were known to be controversial or of quite strong content. Quite the opposite, I should admit. Frankly, it's that I find the idea of this film genuinely disturbing. Not only that, I was positive my wife wouldn't want to watch it, and when I decided this was my classic of the month, I rehearsed a number of arguments as to why I was watching it, and no, I'm not a weirdo, and no, I'm not into car crashes, so there's no need to stop micromanaging my driving the next time we go to the shops. It's a long time since a film has got into my head like this. I bought the film many, many years ago because I'm a Cronenberg fan, and despite all of the above, I was curious about what he'd done with this film and what it was all about. And so finally, and a little reluctantly, I'm watching David Cronenberg's film Crash. I should point out that this is the 1996 film Crash, based on the equally controversial novel by J.G. Ballard, and not the appalling 2005 film Crash, which inexplicably won the Best Picture Oscar, despite being the worst kind of trite, sentimental, manipulative horseshit. I was prepared to defend my decision to watch Cronenberg's film, but you've got to draw the line somewhere. And speaking of the source novel, let's start with the background and origins of this film. J.G. Ballard wrote the novel Crash in 1973. Modern audiences and readers know him best as the author of the novel Empire of the Sun, made into a film by Steven Spielberg in 1987, which was inspired by his own experiences as a child in a Japanese internment camp in World War II. None of that is very representative of Ballard's writing career in general, of course. Empire of the Sun is quite an accessible novel and could be seen as young adult fiction to an extent. And to be very clear, nothing else Ballard wrote is in any danger of being made into a Spielberg film anytime soon. Ballard was first and foremost a writer of dystopian, challenging science fiction that very much existed on the fringes of modern fiction and sci-fi, and he's long been a prominent counterculture figure, writing the sort of books they want to ban from libraries in case they warp young, impressionable minds. His best-known works include The Drowned World, which he wrote in 1962 and predicted a world beset by flooding and environmental catastrophe due to global warming, and High Rise, in which the residents of a tower block become alienated from one another and descend into horrendous violence. Looking back, he seems like a writer making doom-loaded predictions which have a nasty habit of coming true, the kind of profit no one wants to have around. Crash is his most notorious novel and his most disturbing. The book stemmed from a fascination Ballard had with the increasing automation of the world and of what he saw as society seeming to become more violent and depraved. Initially, he explored his ideas by holding an exhibition at a London art gallery of crashed cars, 
which according to some accounts led to some shocking behaviour by visitors towards the cars and each other. He took this a step further with the novel Crash. In it, his jaded central character and his wife have an open marriage and seek out new and increasingly transgressive thrills. Ballard names the main character James Ballard after himself to make the reader closer to what they're reading and therefore more uncomfortable. The fictional Ballard has a car accident in which he is seriously injured and the other driver dies. And as a result, he comes into contact with a secret group obsessed with car crashes. They recreate famous crashes like James Dean and Jane Mansfield and have a sexual fetish for the damaged unto vehicles and to human bodies. He and his wife join in and soon they are all crashing into each other and having sex with each other in a variety of frankly unpleasant ways. The whole thing is deliberately provocative and Ballard refused ever to really explain what he was trying to say with the book. It was controversial even before it was published. The publishing company hired someone to read the book and summarise and comment on it as they normally do. The reader's summary was, this writer is beyond psychiatric help. Do not publish. Previous Ballard work had already been in legal trouble on obscenity grounds, and this faced a similar reaction on publication. The New York Times reviewer called it hands down the most repulsive book they'd ever come across. Many felt it was influenced by, or at least has similar themes to, William Burroughs' out there no uh, novel Naked Lunch. This latter book had already been sort of adapted for the screen by David Cronenberg, and look who it is who finally came to produce and direct the film version of Crash. I've discussed David Cronenberg before on the podcast. He first became famous for making disturbing but hugely inventive horror films that focused on body horror and transgressive sexuality. Over time, he has turned to making films that still explore people's dark sides as he sees it, but no longer in the horror or science fiction genres. His adaptation of Crash in 1996 marks something of a turning point in his career, where his films still contain a kind of body horror and depiction of people compelled by strange perversions of sexuality, but they're starting to focus more on a kind of character study of human psychology. It makes sense to me as a Cronenberg film the way things like Shivers or Rabid would. He's observing people who are compelled to act in a shocking and disturbing way, where sex and death are basically the same thing, and with a kind of body transformation injury theme that is actually more horrifying than his horror films. More horrifying because it's not feasible that a teleportation device will accidentally turn you into an insect creature or that an infection will turn everyone in your neighbourhood into sex-crazed, flesh-eating zombies. But it's entirely feasible for people to achieve the kind of physical transformation portrayed in Crash, where acts of self-harm using something most people have parked beside their home could change your body in appalling ways. The novel may owe something to Naked Lunch, but the film seems to have similarities to American Psycho, the equally controversial 1991 novel which was a core celebre for those who hated it as much as those who loved it. That book was turned into a film later in the same decade to a similar reaction. Like American Psycho, Cronenberg's film portrays mostly well-off people who need to find increasingly extreme ways to find their kicks. It also shares some characteristics with Fight Club, which was based on an extreme and highly polarising novel and featured a secret society engaging in behaviour that wider society would find shocking. The difference here is that Cronenberg makes no comment about his characters. He just portrays, in his usual disturbing style, their obsessions and behaviour. In an interview, he said he intended to show the logical future conclusion of many people's obsessions with cars and sex and death. The reaction to this film when it came out was polarised and extreme. The London Evening Standard newspaper campaigned for it to be banned, which it was in central London, although it was shown elsewhere in the UK. Other newspapers reported on it on an almost daily basis for months. The fuss delayed the film's US release into 1997. Some people championed it, calling it a brilliant film, 
but even they admit it's a tough film to like. The best example of this was when the Cannes Film Festival's judging panel gave it a special award, and the head of the panel, Francis Ford Coppola, refused to give the award to Cronenberg personally because of how much he'd hated the film. At times, the reaction to Crash strayed into absurdity. The British auto recovery and insurance provider, the RAC, got drawn into the debate because of the car crash subject matter. The film was also given an award for Best Alternative Adult Film by the Porn Awards Ceremony, the AVN. As for my reaction to the film, well, I'm a huge David Cronenberg fan, and his brilliance is on full show here, but the whole film makes me terribly uncomfortable, which is no doubt the director's intention. It's not that the sex and violence is much more explicit than any other film. In fact, while it's at the top end of sexual content you'd find in regular films, the violence and gore is nothing like as strong as you'd see in other movies. It's not even close to some of the horrors you'll find in other Cronenberg films. What's so disturbing is how turned on everyone is getting by getting into car accidents, which left me thinking, what's wrong with you people? Why isn't it enough to have a few drinks, a few laughs, and a normal hobby, like throwing axes or swimming with sharks? And what about your car insurance premiums? Are you insane? And so ends my time watching David Cronenberg's Crash. In terms of whether I would recommend this film, that's not easy to answer. It's brilliantly made and acted and certainly not dull or conventional. I think you would need to judge for yourself whether this film is for you and I hope this feature has at least been informative to help you do that. I certainly found it a worthwhile film to watch and to read about, but I don't think I'll watch it again. For those of you who are interested in J.G. Ballard, this is one of the main adaptations of his novels, along with Ben Wheatley's High Rise. Like Crash, that's an astonishing, brutal novel whose screen adaptation divided audiences and critics and a disturbing vision of the near future. And now for the regular special guest conversation to give you a break from listening to just my voice. The different set of dulcet tones you will hear alongside mine belong to my son, James Adamson, who shares my passion for film and long nerdy discussions. This month, the Adamsons are getting a bit political as we discuss the controversies between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, and then look at the issues of diversity in Hollywood and some wider issues of race relations in the wider world. As sometimes happens when we get going, this turned into a bit of an epic, and what you're about to hear in the main podcast is a very short version. The full version of this will be released soon as a bonus episode for those of you who'd like to get your teeth into the entire, very detailed, very long discussion. We were conscious that this is two white men talking about race and diversity in Hollywood and whether it's our place to do that. We decided it would still be worthwhile for us to do it though. We're not trying to tell anyone else what to think or what's racist, unfair or anything else. We know that people of colour, women and other groups in a similar position are better qualified than us to have this discussion. But we feel like everyone including white people and men ought to be willing to have the discussion to try and be aware of the issues. Uh, In that spirit we humbly submit our contribution to the wider debate. The first part of the conversation will close out part one of this month's episode and the exciting conclusion of our conversation will open up part two. We recorded this on Anchor FM on our phones and the audio is mostly all right, but apologize for any blurs and crackles here and there. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Adamsons talking about film and related subjects. Uh, You'll have hopefully tuned into previous discussions we've had about the Oscars, films we watched at school and our early experiences going to the cinema together. This month, we've decided to tackle a bigger and weightier topic, which is uh, diversity in film with the starting point of some of the uh, discussions over uh, race and other matters between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino. 
So welcome, James. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into it. So we discussed before uh, we started recording this, and I think we've discussed it a few times before, that clearly uh, we are two white men. It's not for us to tell people what we think is racist and what isn't or what is diverse and what isn't. Um, but I think we decided it was worth discussing this because A, it's a discussion that needs to be had that's being had around the world at the moment. And B, it seems like the right thing for everyone to be open to having this discussion. Um, so for what it's worth, our tiny little contribution into the world and hopefully people will see with entirely positive intentions, we thought we'd have a chat about this and see what we have found, seen and learned and what the future might hold for this topic. Um, having said that, why don't we start, James, you've done a lot of preparation for this. Why don't you start with, you know, what you feel like the appropriate jumping off point is to get into this topic? Uh, okay, yeah, I have done a fair bit of prep, but I basically just started like my notes on with basically what the, the disagreement, well, not the disagreement, like the, the feud somewhat that Spike Lee and Tarantino have had um, over the past 30 odd years. Um, and yeah, just, well, let, let, let's crack into that first yeah, just, then and then see where it takes us. I just kind of briefly summarized that and then just kind of from there just kind of linked everything else together. Sure. Um, sure. So yeah, basically, yeah, basically, we know we all know Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino. Hopefully, people listening know that they've made some of the best films of the last thirty years, but um, the two don't really see eye to eye, um, particularly on the issue of race and racism in movies. And we all know that um, Spike Lee has, you know, directed films that are very much concerning the civil rights movement. You know, um, with Malcolm X and more recently Black Klansman, which isn't about the civil rights movement, but it's you know an interesting topic about a black guy you know, taking on the KKK, it's not a civil rights movement, but it's, it's one of those things, it's almost like a black power kind sure. of film, which I, I've, I've yeah. enjoyed um, Black Klansman immensely, I only watched it quite recently. Um, but with Tarantino, he's obviously a, a white guy, and he's famously written and directed films to screen that have used racial slurs, uh, and I've put a little bit of trivia. In fact, all of his films except The Kill Bills and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood have the use of the N-word or similar derivatives. Mm -hmm. um, with Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction and Django Chained obviously being the most famous ones. Django Unchained uses it about 100 times. Jackie Brown, I think it's about 37, 38. And I didn't yeah, get the number right. for Pulp Fiction, but there's there's obviously a lot of use in it. Um, and in 1997, uh, Spike Lee challenged the use of this racial language. Um, basically, what he said was he wasn't against the word and that some people speak that way, but he just didn't like Tarantino's excessive use of it. Um, and they just, he just he didn't feel right with Tarantino writing characters using that language, whereas Tarantino retorted... Yeah. Sorry, uh, what were you going to say? Oh, no, no, carry on. I think you're, you're about to finish so, the yeah. thought. And then Tarantino just kind of retorted back, speaking um, with on the Charlie Rose show, saying, as a writer, I demand the right to write any character in the world that I want to write, and that he wants to preach the characters truthfully. He then further explains that there are members of the black community in areas such as Compton and Inglewood that use the same language as characters in the aforementioned movies. Um, and he states that it's racist not to question, no, it's racist to not question a black writer creating characters or stories that have this language, but to question when a white writer does it. Um, anything you want to discuss and dissect there? I know I've, I've spoke quite. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I remember uh, reading something that Spitely said about after Jackie Brown, which was to say that um, uh, he felt like Tarantino was a little bit too enamoured of using the word. Yeah. 
And so it was almost like a case of, it wasn't a case of Spike Lee saying you shouldn't use that word or that a white people, white writer couldn't use that word. He, the argument he seemed to be making was you need to understand the significance of using that word. And it felt like Tarantino was just chucking it around. Now, this is not to say that's, you know, right or wrong, but that, that seemed to be part of the argument that Spike Lee was making. Now, obviously this got its biggest like profile on, on Jackie Brown. Although, as I understand it, Spike Lee did comment on the infamous Pulp Fiction incident as well, where, and and it might be worth kind of getting getting into the background of that. Now, er, early on, Tarantino was actually in a Spike Lee film playing a a film director, like a little cameo role playing a film director. I didn't know that, but yeah. Yeah, and so they, 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 you know, and obviously fell out after that. Um, and, you know, different people have weighed in on the topic, apparently Denzel Washington on the set of Crimson Tide, yeah. um, which didn't, I think Crimson Tide came out before um, Jackie Brown, so it was possibly to do with the whole Pulp Fiction thing, that Pulp Fiction incident, he said, you know, you, are you sure you know how to use that word? Sort of sort of challenged him on set. Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, my, my background, sort of the background to this is that there's actually a fair bit of a use of the N-word in, in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. And the people using the word are clearly being racist. And while, you know, I don't think Tarantino sort of comments specifically or is making a film about racism, but I, I don't think you could accuse him of endorsing that any more that he endorses people getting their ears cut off or robbing banks. Yeah. He just felt like it was realistic that some of those characters would hold those views and, 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 and that those views would go unchallenged. Um, as with Tarantino, there's also almost a, a question of, does he, does he know the boundary? Because there's this whole speech about, you know, I think he's talking about, I think you're, um, you've been having sex with so many black men in prison that it's making you say things, you know, it's like it's, it's coming out of your mouth now. And you just think, okay, you might be pushing the boundaries of taste there. And Tarantino yeah. is always pushing the boundaries of taste. Uh, and, and Tarantino would say, well, that's what a guy like that would say. So that's how I wrote it. And, and that's very much his attitude to, 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 to writing that. And I don't think anyone challenged him on Reservoir Dogs. I think it was generally his intentions were understood. Then on Pulp Fiction, the question was, should a, it, it just didn't seem realistic and it didn't seem right that a white guy, again, played by Tarantino, who's, who's acting is not as spot on as his writing, yeah. Yeah, um, is, is saying this using the N-word in, in relation to, you know, the, the dead N-word in my garage. And... I think Samuel L. Jackson challenged him on set at the time. Says, "You're not saying it right. If you're trying to say it like a black guy would say it, it's N I G G A. It's a you know, it's the, the yeah. it's a small but important distinction. And I think I don't think Tarantino's intentions were racist when he wrote that character, but I think most people would agree he sort of got it wrong. And we talked about it on a previous episode that if if a black character had said that, you would go, oh, yeah, that's very clever. Do you know what I mean? You go, yeah, that's the sort of thing that you would say when someone well, turns up with a yeah, dead body you in your driveway. You said Chris Rock would be excellent delivering that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, Chris Rock is, I mean, Chris Rock has done some brilliant stuff about what the the word, what the N-word means and, and, and when it's appropriate to use it. And, you know, he's obviously better placed to do so than I am. Yeah. But it, it, it is kind of, if... if Someone might have said you really need to use the N word in that in that context, but people would have criticised it like a million times less if it had been a black actor saying those lines. And I, I, I bet money, right? I bet money. And if you put like Tarantino under light, you know, a poly, you know, sodium pentothal kind of truth drug, and said you wrote that for a black guy, Tarantino, and then decided to do it yourself, didn't you, mate? I bet that's what happened. Yeah. 
well, but, but that's what, but with Jackie Brown, you get into you get into the meat of the discussion because he's writing the essentially the Samuel Jackson character, the 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 gun you know the gun dealer, the criminal, yeah. uh, you know, the antagonist in the story, who is from that part of LA and uses those kind of words. Yeah, and there is, you know, it's Tarantino also in that film specifically changed the central character from a white woman to a black woman for the um for the film um and because he felt like it would it would be better for a black woman to be the hero of his story and he loved you know pam greer from from the old days so again i think it's 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 probably with with jack Brown, it's a question of is the difference between intention and and whether he whether he got got the balance right do you know what i mean yeah i don't uh... Well, we've got so much to dissect. I don't think Tarantino has the intent of being a, a racist character. I just don't think he knows when to tone it down or when to do things the right way. That's what I will say about Tarantino. I've, and, and, and I've had conversations about people who are perhaps not as big fans of him as I have, who've made the point that he's he's like that with things like violence on screen as well. Mm-hmm. And And while I continue to be a big fan of his, people have made that comment and I've gone... I, I see. I see Can't where you're coming disagree. from. He's, um, he, you know, he's, he's, he will, he will p- portray events more violently than other people would, and everyone, everyone knows he will. I mean, I'm sure when you heard that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was going to be about the Sharon Tate murders, I just kind of went. You, must uh, have, you thought, do you know what I mean? You think that yeah. could go really wrong? Do you know what I mean? Because and just because he, he it's similar in a sense to the director Paul Verhoeven, who did RoboCop and. Um, uh, total Recall and stuff like that. People accused his films of just being far too violent. Yeah. And he, I remember he said, his context that was, well, I grew up in Nazi-occupied Holland <laughs> and or, or was born in Nazi-occupied Holland and I remember, you know, that time. So maybe my idea of what's too violent is different from other people's. Yeah, I mean... And, and Tarantino's background to that is different. And I think wh- where Tarantino's coming from is he watched a lot of exploitation films when he grew up. Yeah. He watched lots of violent movies and he is influenced by that. And he is kind of making films in that universe where people say and do things where the average person goes, whoa, you know, is that too much? Yes. I think with Tarantino, no matter how much we enjoy his movies, there'll always be something in that film that was just a bit too much. Um, But what I've written about that famous scene where he talks about the den, the dead N-word storage, I just, I've just said, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm just, I'm completely uncomfortable with a white director and writer creating a role that he plays himself and he uses that expletive about six times in the space of 20 seconds. And I'm, I'm just kind of said like, no, no amount of discussion or explanations is going to make me comfortable with that. Like, yeah. if that, and I've said, if it was played by a Chris Rock or, you know, a black actor, then I would have probably... In- all, 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 all the characters are white racist. But Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not me. If, if, the, if the characters are white racist and John Travolta and Samuel Jackson go off to one side and go, look, I know this guy's a prick, right? But he's the only he's the only thing stopping us being arrested right now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but that needs But to they be, don't say that. Everyone just acts like it's a normal a thing for blokes who have just Genuinely, said, yeah. yeah. they just enjoy a cup of coffee. And like, he's seeing it in front of Samuel Jackson. It's just like, oh, you know, I don't know. I know I didn't yeah, that's it. what someone said. Surely no one would would talk like that in front of Samuel Jackson and expect yeah. to still have his teeth afterwards. If, yeah, if he was like, you know, if he, I don't know, if he had like a Confederate flag or a KKK mask, you know, 
adorn in his living room. Then yeah, but it's literally just like, oh, I'm enjoying a cup of coffee. And he's like, you let's go to his t- house. He's a good guy. He'll help us out. Yeah. Really? Or then it's like, no, he's a piece of shit. He's a racist, but he's the only thing getting us out of the situation. Then yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But there's nothing like you know preceding that that scene where it's like, yeah, this guy's a racist. It's just like it just seems like Tarantino really wanted to say the N word, and he's hiding behind a character that he's written for himself. Um. Yeah, just it, it's it's excessive. The scene didn't the scene didn't need a nerdy white guy throwing racial slurs for no reason. Like this that doesn't that doesn't drive the plot. It doesn't add anything to the film. It's just kind of like oh look, there's a yeah. white guy saying the n word. It's like okay, cool. What, there's wow. there's another there's another element like Tarantino's background here that comes into this is he is again you you, you get into this topic and you sound like you're slagging him off. I mean, I think he's one of the most talented people who's ever got behind a camera and I genuinely don't think he's racist. And here I am talking about all the things that, you know, make him a bit of a, that that might seem, I think he's a dick. He is one of those people who he thinks he's blacker than other white people. Yes. He, he's, you know, he, he went on a lot about saying he went to a high school in California that was, uh, you know, majority black. Well, I think in the background it was actually more Latino than black. Um, and having said that, I bet you he knows more. I bet you he's got more black friends than I have. I bet you he spent more time hanging around with people who use the N-word generally in conversation than I have. But even more. Um, and, and, and more than most white people. Um, but there is still that element of there's a certain eye-rolling that goes on with a certain kind of white person who's, who, who thinks he's black. I think we've all kind of seen that character. He's parodied in songs and, and, and you think, come on. You know, it's it's basically it's 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 almost Ali G, and so. But at the same time, you, you look at apart from Pulp Fiction, it seems to me his intentions towards his black characters have 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 not been um, bad. If you see what I mean, not been yeah, kind of unfair it, or yeah, discriminatory. His, his intentions aren't. I don't think Tarantino's a racist. I just think he's made some really ill-judged decisions. Like. I'm going to try and back that up when we talk about Django Unchained and try and like make that. More. Yeah, we go back to Django Unchained. I mean, with with Jackie Brown, the you know, on on there's something else because because again, it's not for me to 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 say it's right or it's wrong. You know, you just hear some of the people who said something about it. John Ridley, he's a, a an African American guy. I think he's American anyway. He's a black guy who who wrote the script for Twelve Years a Slave. He he didn't say he didn't say it as outspokenly as Spike Lee. And, and what I would say about Spike Lee is, I think Spike Lee is one of those people who, when something pisses him off, he, he's quite robust in the way he, he, he talks about it. Yeah, he's fair. And, and, af- and after he's calmed down and had a cup of tea, he's, pr- you know, if you, if you asked him to, to, after he initially got angry, if you asked him to sit down and explain what he thought Talk about it, I'm sure, he'd give you, yeah. I'm sure he'd give you a brilliantly argued kind of clear statement of where he's coming from. So, you know, I, but, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm probably the sort of person who sort of lets off a bit of steam and I'm fucked off or something as well. Yeah, so it's, I'm, it's I, a knee I, jerk. I, I, it's a knee totally jerk get reaction, it. I, yeah. I totally get it. John Ridley was very, very balanced. But he's probably saying that exactly the same thing as Spike Lee is to say, look, great, talented bloke. Um, you know, I understand why if you're writing a character from a particular kind of background, they will use the N-word in that way. But there's a point where you think, actually, I think you're overdoing it there. The flip side to that, is that Samuel L. Jackson has actually said in an interview, and obviously people saying a lot of things in interviews, Tarantino says a lot of things in interviews. Um, um, Samuel L. Jackson said, there are scenes where I've probably said the N-word five times where Tarantino's written in the script once. Yeah, was that for then, Jackie Brown or was that for... That's for Jackie, that's, yeah, that's for Jackie Brown. And... I think it's for Jackie Brown, but again, it's, prob- it, yeah. it's probably it's probably a figure of speech. But if if Tarantino if, if Tarantino uses the N word and then 
Samuel Jackson, because he thinks it's appropriate for his character, chucks a few extra uses of the word in. It, it's someone, someone then does the word count and goes, yeah, 38 times. Aren't you overdoing it a bit, Quentin? So, so there's, there's, look, there's people who make, I think, entirely fair comments about whether Tarantino is overusing the word without kind of thinking too hard about the consequences and that the, it's, it's highly, you know, it's obviously an incredibly kind of explosive word to use, right? Well, yeah, and in and, certain contexts and by certain people, yeah. It's... And, and, and Tarantino said something really interesting. He says, when, when, it, when a word is that powerful and that scary, everyone should say it a thousand times until it doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. And I get it. I, I get where he's coming from. Yeah. But we, we live in the world we live in, don't we? So people are always going to ask this question. So there's people who defend what he's done absolutely to the hilt. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson absolutely defends every word that Tarantino's written and that's come out of Samuel L. Jackson's mouth on screen. He defends it with his life. Jamie Foxx has defended it as well. Other people have made criticisms where I've listened to what they've said and gone, yeah, I, I think you might have a point there. Well, see, what I've what I've written is is that I... I've not defended the use of Django Unchained, but I understand why it was used so profusely in Django Unchained. Yeah. Because, yeah. well, just to, just to, before we get into it, uh, Spike Lee said he wasn't going to watch the film back in 2012. He said, I'm not watching it. It was disrespectful mm -hmm. to his ancestors. And then later tweeted, American slavery was not a Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti western. It was a Holocaust. My ancestors are slaves. I will honor them. And Tarantino just replied saying, I'm not going to waste my time responding to those comments. And Samuel L. Jackson even said, look, he, that's fair enough. You don't want to see it because you think it's going to be disrespectful, then fair enough. But you, you can't comment on it because if you actually watch the film, he's not he's not actually trying to yeah. be disrespectful yeah, to yeah. slaves or their ancestors. In yeah, terms he's, of what, what he's saying basically is is that you you have you you have every right to say that slavery and the incredibly damaging and horrendous and horrific genocidal. Um, events that took place because of slavery and racism is not a subject for an for an entertainment film. But you're not in a position to comment on whether Tarantino did it appropriately or not if you don't actually watch the film. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then Tarantino's been quoted saying that Lee's a son of a bitch. Uh, he's never going to work for him again because they obviously worked together on Girl 6. And then yeah. Tarantino said in an interview with Howard Stern, rather sensitively, Spike Lee would have to stand on a chair to kiss his ass. So that's yeah. that, that was the last of the feud between you know the two. Yeah, and the, the other the other thing about these two guys is is they both love giving very quotable interviews. If if Spike Lee was a, 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 a in in the world of football, he'd be Roy Keane. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he'd be the person that you just oh, fucking hell, hold a microphone in front of his mouth. He's bound to say something yeah. that's going to fill some column inches. Um, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I also looked at some of the other feuds that Spike Lee's had because this is almost like oh, Spike Lee's had feuds with people. Yeah. First thing to say is he's not he's not had that many feuds with people, and they've been called feuds. Like he he fell out with Clint Eastwood a little bit for not featuring any black soldiers and flags of our fathers. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood said, "Well, I was only talking about the guys who lifted the flag, and um, none of them were black." And you know, and he said, "Oh, we should shut his face." And you never know whether Clint Eastwood said he should shut his face because some journalist had just stuck a microphone in his mouth and said. Um, Spitely thinks you're a racist. What do you say to that? Do you know what I mean? Because you you know the media try and stir this stuff. Yeah, up. they try and twist it. I've been watching that. And just, the, and, sorry, that's just a side note. I've been watching the Last Dance. Have you seen it on Netflix about the Chicago Bulls? And, no, not yet. Um, yeah, the the media completely twist um, twist everything that the owner tries to do just to try and spin the story. But yeah, carry on. Yeah, and the the other thing is, if you actually read a little bit further, it, it turns out that within a year there was no more feud between the two of them. Although I didn't speak directly, um, Spike Lee 
because it's friends with Steven Spielberg, who's friends with Eastwood, and apparently had a quick word and said, look, oh, look I don't mean any ill will, you know, it's not a problem, and Steven Spielberg said, yeah, it's not a problem. And Spike Lee sent Clint Eastwood a copy of a film he'd made about black soldiers in World War II. And this is now goes down in history as a feud between Clint Eastwood and Spike Lee, where Even what happened was Spike Lee, Spike Lee said something to a journalist and everyone went, wow! And then Clint Eastwood said something to a journalist and everyone went, wow! And if you actually, if they bumped into each other now, they'd go, oh, hi, Spike. Well, yeah, though they've obviously. Well, I, I doubt Clint Eastwood would go up to Spike Lee and go, "Hi, Spike." But yeah, yeah. <laughs> hi, hi, Spike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So, but what's different with the Spike Lee and Tarantino? It's obviously a personal one, isn't it? They've taken it very personal, and it's it's understandable because it's a discussion around a, an extremely sensitive issue. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's it's like Tarantino's obviously very passionate about the films he makes, and Spike Lee's obviously very passionate about racism. Spike Lee is a black director who has an entirely different experience with racism than me, yourself, or even Tarantino. So if it's such a difficult if, subject. If, if, if Spike Lee thinks that Tarantino has gone over the top and, and, and is not being respectful to his position, you at least have to stop and think about, okay, you know, why does Spike think that? You know? Yeah. Because well, he's that, a black guy. He's probably, got, he's probably got a living relative or probably got a grandparent who who had a grandparent who was a slave. You've literally just finished the note I've got written down. I said, right. It's, it's, yeah. Therefore, if he is appalled to the use of racist language towards black people, then fair enough, he's entitled to his opinion. And I do believe that some of the criticisms towards Tarantino are valid, but not, yeah. not, not all of them. Um, when it comes yeah. to Django Unchained, I've just, I've, this is literally just after the bit where I've discussed how horrible I find that Pulp Fiction scene. Um, yeah. But it's because it's a film that's 120 years after Django Unchained and it's, it just didn't need to have that scene. But in Django Unchained, it's, it's a, it's a bit different. It's again, he does give himself a cameo where he plays an Australian slave trader. And while I'm more offended by the Australian accent that he uses than his racist language, it's I'm it, sure, I'm sure Spike Lee would be as well. Yeah. But the thing is, I'm not as uncomfortable with that, that character because it's a slave trader. It's a slave trader in the, the eighteen, like the just beginning of the eighteen sixties. Yes. So, well, if, well th this is the thing in the, the story in the storyline of the film. Slavery is bad. Slavers are yeah. bad. But most of the white people. I mean, I'm trying to think of any white people other than Christoph Waltz in that film who aren't portrayed as despicable, and who aren't brutally killed at the end while the entire audience cheers and thinks, "Yeah, you fucking deserve to get killed." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's not like, like Tarantino's sympathies are in the wrong place when it comes to slavery. He has portrayed slavery as bad and slavers as the bad guys. And he's then written a story where he said, well, those people are the bad guys. My black hero is going to kick the fuck out as bad guys. There's not a question of where his sympathies lie, is it? On the subject of Spike Lee, I mean, he... Um, I mean, j just to close the loop, Spike Lee, as far as I can see, has had a couple of feuds. And I want to mention one of the other ones because I think it'll, it'll come into play when we talk about the rest of Hollywood. He accused Tyler Perry of being stereotypical and almost being like is some of his characters being like the minstrel show. Yeah. Um, would also hasten to add, I think they've sorted it out. I don't think they have a problem with each other anymore. Um, and, and I think that is the kind of the... I haven't seen a lot of other stories of, of Spike Lee feuding with people. Let's be fair to Spike Lee on that one. His other feud is with the New York Knicks. Uh, uh, and it was... Yeah, why was it's that a, It's a number of things. He, he fell out with them over the... He, he'd been using the same entrance for like 20 years to go in there and then they told him to use another entrance. But it was all part of the thing where he'd been kind of outspokenly criticising the existing owners of the New York Knicks. And they were like, fuck and the, you. The, 
the fundamental problem that Spike Lee has with the New York Knicks is that he loves that team and he'll support them till the day he dies, but he believes that the owner's an asshole. As a Sunderland fan... Wait, <laughs> wait, I just, that's I just, familiar. <laughs> as a Sunderland fan, I just want to say, Spike, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, and, yeah, and, and to be honest... Tarantino. People, yeah, actually, actually, I, I'm now I'm now on Spike's side, um, but no, um, the, 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 the thing with, with with Spike Lee is they do have this. Oh, Spike Lee has all these feuds. I found I found four, yeah, two that were a storm in a teacup, one where I'm 100 percent on his side about the New York Knicks and this thing with Tarantino. So I don't think, I mean, uh, Spike Lee is 63 years old. Uh, these. And everything he does gets talked about in the media. So I, I don't think it's fair to refer to him as someone who frequently has feuds with people. Um, what I would say, just in the interest of balance, is he's been accused of anti-Semitism in one of his films, um, Mo Better Blues, for his portrayal of a, of a pair of um, Jewish characters. And one thing he said in his defense on that was, all right, fair enough, but if I'd used the K word, and I'm not going to repeat it, it's a, an anti-Semitic term used to, oh, yeah, to describe uh, Jewish people. If yeah, I'd used yeah, that, yeah. that word 38 times in my film, my career would be over. And what I would say in response to that is Spike would have a point about that if young urban Jewish rappers use that word routinely in their, in their language and, and, and wrote songs that use that word and, and they don't. It's not quite the same thing. See, um, again, I, I think you would be cancelled, but for a different reason. I think Spike Lee wouldn't get away with it. And I think that's because he's black. And I think in, a, in Hollywood they're looking for an excuse to cancel. Well, recently they were, I think they've got better at it, but they were looking for any reason to cancel people. And if you're going to cancel someone, it's the systemic institutionalized racism, but we'll get onto that in a minute. Yeah, um, but I mean, j just to say that it's, um, it's, it's, it, it, it is possible for someone who on the whole has generally good intentions to get it wrong. Well, have you, you haven't seen the five bloods on Netflix. No. It's by Spike Lee. Yeah. Um, it's got Chadwick Boseman in it. It's really good. But there's, it's about black soldiers in Vietnam. And um, one of the characters, uh, I think he's come home and he's, he's, he's used racial slurs towards Vietnamese people. You know, the, the one that begins with G, NGK. Yeah. He uses yeah. that towards Vietnamese people. And, um, you know, that, that, that obviously it's not used as profusely as Tarantino using the N-word and Django Unchained of Pulp Fiction, but it's still said and it's put, it's blamed on a character suffering from PTSD. Do I think Spike Lee is a racist for using that? No, because he's trying to portray an accurate context. I thoroughly believe that there have been people that fought in Vietnam that came home and will if they're suffering from PTSD, they will have seen their friends be shot by the Vietnamese army and they will have they will have expressed that anger in the wrong way by racially abusing them, but it still will have happened. I don't doubt for a yeah. minute in the racist hotbed that America is that that didn't happen. I reckon yeah. it happened heaps, and Spike Lee is just trying to tell the truth, and I would be more offended if they tried to do a film about slavery and have tried to avoid the use of racial slurs because it would be inaccurate. If you want to do a film yeah, yeah. set in it Vietnam... Just, it would be whitewashing it, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you, and if you didn't use the, the G word or you know horrible words about Vietnamese people, if you didn't use that, I'd be more offended about that because you're trying to be inaccurate and you're trying to hide that history and kind to dance around it no be straight to the point if that happened it happened and we need to say that it happened to tell people that it was wrong rather than dance around it kind of like oh uh, we're not going to say it. it's like no just just own it be, be be frank and say that it happened and tell me that it happened so i can go look that's not the right thing to say and that shouldn't happen again rather than dance around it like some fanny 
Yeah, I mean, while while films can educate, I think what what you're saying, and I agree with this, is that the audience has got to take some of its own education into the movie with them. Yeah, and and the whole, I mean, war films, you know, Vietnam films have, you know, there are, there's a whole subgenre of them. There's not been as many of them as you'd think, but it's it's a well worn cliche that Tropic Thunder was all over of the language that gets used by soldiers in Vietnam, including to describe the. Um, the Vietnamese, the G word and, and other things. And you kind of generally say, all right, well, they're using that to describe, you know, they're, they're trying to give you an accurate depiction of what life in those trenches were like, what those people were like. And the quality of the person making the film and the intention of the person making the film will sometimes be apparent. Someone who's actually talented and serious will use that language and you'll kind of understand it. And then there'll be other people who are just jumping on the bandwagon and throwing in all the cliches, and you think, "Oh, okay, you're 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 actually making me uncomfortable here." And it, yeah. all, I, I would say, there's been a few things I've seen on the TV, on American TV and American films, where there is a certain degree of racism that's still um, still acceptable. You know, there are sitcoms that go out before 9 p.m. on American TV that seem to be able to say what they like about Muslims, and there's often a little little bit they say about um, uh, you know Chinese, East Asian, Korean characters as well where i think yeah. really is that's okay is it yeah it's obviously not but it's a different it's a different kettle of fish over there it's, it seems to be it seems to be something that, that they just seem to be less there are certain things that if you said that about a black person you would quite rightly go hang the fuck on and then they yeah. say it about someone else and you go well i'm not quite sure why that's okay yeah well, it doesn't help but they've got that fucking orange prick in charge the started muslim bands and building a fucking wall doesn't yeah, I mean, yeah. he's, he's no wonder a kind of worms for everyone yeah, no wonder it's on before nine PM. It's probably on fucking Nickelodeon over there. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's that's pretty much all I've got to say about Spike Lee and Tarantino. I so see Spike Lee and Tarantino, I think it's kind of it's 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 they they both raise points. They both raise questions deliberately and and, and perhaps less deliberately in, in the minds of, of the audience. And they to be honest, the world would be poorer if those two weren't making films regardless of whether you like all of yeah. their films. So having had a look at that topic between uh, Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, which raised some issues around race and diversity, among other things, um, James, you have some other points you'd like to cover regarding diversity in Hollywood? Yeah, well, firstly, I just kind of wanted to talk about how racism and you know the offence that can be caused by it is a very difficult thing to navigate in Hollywood and obviously modern society, but particularly in Hollywood, it's obviously a highly sensitive issue and understandably so. Um, but it seems that a filmmaker runs the risk of offending a lot of people and almost both sides or both sides of the coin. So obviously mm -hmm. you have people that didn't like Django because of the use of the language. Um, and if you, if you don't like the language, then that's for a decision. I, I think it's, it makes the film more satisfying because these people are racist and they're horrible. And then Django and Dr. Schultz shoot these horrible people. And I recognize that the language is very strong. And if someone doesn't like the excessive use of the language, then that's, if it's a, and, a, and it's a black person that doesn't like it, if anyone finds it uncomfortable, then that's fair enough. They're alleged that. And if a black person says they're not cool with it, I'm not going to tell them, no, change your mind, because, you know, mm -hmm. that's not my position. On yeah. the other hand, you have a production like Hamilton, which I loved, you loved, it's great. I only got to see it, you got to see it live in the West End. I only got to see, only got to see the uh, film thing on Disney+. Plus. Um, but it's a story that concerns characters that were white in real life yeah. um, and some of these people on slaves. However, in all of its forms, from Broadway to the West End to the touring production, it's had a very diverse cast. It's, yeah, predominantly people of colour in every part. I can't, yeah, in the, the film production, the only characters that I can think that are played by white people are King George III, 
Mm-hmm. And that's it. Is Lafayette? No, Lafayette's played by David Diggs. Oh, yes, plays Jefferson. Yes, yeah. So you got yeah. Aaron Burr's played by a black guy. Hamilton's played by a guy who's Puerto Rican. You got mm-hmm. um, Washington played by a black guy. Even Eliza's played by um, she's she's white, and I think her her mum's white and her dad's uh, Asian Chinese, mm-hmm. or so, I think, or, or you know of that yeah. descent. And then you've yeah. got uh, Angelica played by black people. So I think that's great. It's it's great to have a diverse cast. Um, it's a great decision to have a diverse cast, and because of multi, it's a, it's a cast of multiple ethnicities. And as much as many right wing people in America might hate it, the United States is a diverse country with people of many ethnicities. And Hamilton yeah. is telling the story of America then with people from America now, and I think mm-hmm. that's excellent. But even yeah, then, I agree. But even then, it's not it's not been immune to criticism, which Lin Manuel Miranda's you know kind of held his hands up and said, yeah, it's valid. But the problem I kind of found a bit odd is that I don't I don't care if a black guy's playing Thomas Jefferson as long as they're giving a great performance which they all do they're all excellent but mm-hmm. it's drawn criticism for whitewashing history because you've got black people playing George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and we're kind of glorifying Hamilton who you know had you know did have a kind of links to the slave trade he worked for um yeah. his landlord who you know had a bit of a shady history with yeah. owning slaves yeah. Um, but yeah, the, a black, primarily George Washington and Thomas Jefferson are played by black guys, and they both famously own slaves. George Washington had slaves. Thomas Jefferson had over six hundred slaves. Lin Manuel Miranda said, "You know, it's it's the criticism is valid, and I would agree to some extent. But I, I don't think the creative choice to give the role of George Washington to a black guy, or the the role of Thomas Jefferson to a black guy, is not because they wanted to whitewash history. It's because those guys are talented. It's because those guys are both yeah. excellent." you know, in the musical. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I saw something and this was a, uh, I think it was on a history documentary on the BBC where an American academic who, who I, you know, I, I assume from the discussion, she would be progressive, you know, political left of centre and, and, and generally in favour of, of equality, diversity and, and, and black people and other minority groups, etc., getting a fair crack of the whip. So um, it, her, her, her motives were, she felt it was a bit harsh for or a bit, bit inappropriate for this this musical to maybe think make people think oh you know uh, uh, people were nicer or less racist and more diverse than they actually were in real life and is that any different to say gone with the wind which gave a an inc- you know very glamorized version of life in the deep south and my view on that is you know it's fair place to Lin- lin-manuel miranda for, for holding his hands up to to, to that criticism personally I 100% agree with what Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing. And and the reason for that is simply this. The American Constitution and what the founding fathers did to build their country and the values that they stand for are an ongoing discussion in America today. They are always talking about um, the Constitution and whether the next thing that a politician wants to do or a law that people want to change or, or a way that they live in America today is constitutional or not. And that founding period of... Um, of America is continues to be part of the discussion, and I, I can't think of a better way for Black people, minority ethnic people, any any group of person in America, to stand up and take part in that conversation than to say, "I am American." The thing that I'm trying to do in the world today, the thing I'm trying to do to change America, or the thing I'm trying to do to make the world around me a better place, is to be like the founding fathers who saw something that needed to be better, well, and. 
and yeah. and they embody the the true values of the constitution the two values of the you know liberty and the two the true values of of, of freeing yourself from oppression they're fundamental to america and what Hamil what hamilton says is we don't endorse slavery and we acknowledge that the, what, a lot of what people did back then was you know um you know not what you would agree with today but they were they moved the world you know not just america but the whole world forward in their time and i embody that and what better way for for anyone in america today to make the world a better place and to stand up for the values that makes them you know all things considered a unique country well yeah that is that yeah you've done you've you've done it great justice i couldn't i couldn't have put it better and i don't think that you know they're trying to cover up the history and you know in in the musical it's like people are saying oh they're whitewashing it's like no literally in one of the cabinet battles i think it's the first one not the second one yeah um you know David Diggs is playing Thomas Jefferson saying, oh, you want to ta tax our whiskey, you know, don't tax us, don't take it on us because we've got it made in the shade, you know. You know, we plant seeds and grow kind of thing. And then Hamilton mm -hmm. just starts going, you know, we all know who's doing the planting. You don't pay for labour. So he's, he's yeah, calling he does, out. Yeah, yeah, he's calling it out, yeah. Yeah, he's calling it out. So I don't think he's trying to cover up the fact that these men own slaves because they, they, you know, the play openly challenges the ownership and criticises them heavily for it. Well, Je Jefferson, but the sentiment is still there overall. Mm -hmm. But I think what I'm trying to say is that even a production like Hamilton with a multi-ethnic cast can still face criticism for issues relating to racism. That's how difficult yes, it, this topic it, it, is. It, it, it is. It is a, a topic. And I think what, you know, I, I personally think that if you try really hard to be mindful and acknowledge that you might not get it right, but if you're, if you're, if you're pure in heart and your intentions are good, then you've at least, you've still got to try and, and 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 express something. It would be it would be it would have been a terrible shame if, for example, Hamilton had um, uh, not gone ahead because Lin Manuel Lin Manuel, Lin -Manuel Miranda. I'm having real trouble with that. If Miranda had gone, <laughs> yeah, I can't quite get this right. If I've, I can't quite get this right, so I'm not going to do it. I think the world's infinitely a better place for him to have done it, and for it nonetheless to be imperfect which is kind of the lesson it's telling you about the Constitution. There's a whole exchange in Hamilton about the Constitution is full of flaws, so we better, we better make some amendments. And the whole point is it's a, it's a continuing discussion. You're not going to get any better unless you kind of, you know, get, get, in, get in amongst it and, and, try and, and try and be involved and try and improve things. Yeah. And it just it's, it's one of those, it kind of frustrates me when they have discussions like this because it's like we shouldn't enjoy it because it's got slave owners. It's like no, it's not. This this whole discussion about you know commemorations of people that own slaves because that was obviously a big thing you know a couple of months ago with um, they brought down the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol, mm -hmm. um, and I had I had to, like a big chat with my mate um, Rory about this and while I understand why the statue was brought down the statue and the commemoration towards these people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, is on Mount Rushmore with George Washington. The commemorations of these people weren't made because they own slaves. It's because they helped fucking, you know, defeat the British and set up the country that people are living in today. So it's one of those, it's one of those things that's so difficult because I understand why someone would want to bring down that statue. Or if you want to say George Washington's a bell end because he owns slaves then Fair enough, slaves were evil, but it was what was done at the time. In yeah, 1776, it's, it's, it's totally different. Issue. 1776 is totally different to 2020. Of course, it's evil to own slaves, but back then that was just seen as the done thing. Doesn't make it okay, doesn't make it right, but we have to remember that this is set 226 years ago, 224 years ago, sorry. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there, are, there are nuances to this. First of all, you, 
you're not you're not going to move forward in, in any form of discussion if you don't commemorate the fact that George Washington fought for, literally put his life on the line for what eventually became a democracy that, and, and changed the whole Western world. Because the idea that, you know, we're not going to just pay taxes to a king who doesn't represent us and his what he did was one of the most progressive acts that anyone's ever done in history. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he was a slaver. There is a, I, I think it is valid to commemorate him. The flip side to that is these Confederate, Confederate statues and these Confederate flags, they were part of, if you study the history, and that's really what this comes down to, in the, the history needs to be fully studied. These Confederate statues in America were commemorating people who fought to, fought to keep slavery. They, they, they fought against what was right. There yeah. wasn't a case of they were fighting for what was right, but so, you know, some aspects of them weren't right. They were fighting against what was right. And then for 150 years after slavery, their images and their names were used in a system that replaced slavery and was almost as bad. And there's a big difference between knocking down one of those statues and dropping a bomb on Mount Rushmore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, and, and regarding, I mean, the, the statue that got pulled down in Bristol of the guy who was a, a slave trader and yet did a lot for, for, um, uh, for the, city. the city of Bristol, yeah. I mean, where I came down, it was, you know what? They probably should pull down the statue, yeah? But that shouldn't be the end of the discussion, yeah? There should now be a discussion about what Bristol was, you know, how Bristol was formed and what that guy did and what he did that was good and that was bad. And maybe that statue needs to go in a, in a museum somewhere in Bristol. The same thing to mum. And, and, and everyone should be fully informed about everything and come mm-hmm. out of it and go, well, you know what? People are complicated, and we have to we have to get our heads around. If we're if if we're going to be well informed people about the world that we that came before us and is and is going to going to go on from here, we need to fully understand history and all its nuances. So I think it it was right to pull the statue down, but I think if they just left the statue in the river and that had been the end of the discussion, that would have been wrong as well. If you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean. It's one of the things where I don't think you should get rid of the statue because that in itself is almost whitewashing history. It's like, get rid of the statue, no one knows about Edward Colston. No, you put it on, you, you create museums, you create yeah. educational purposes. You put it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a museum in Bristol. If that gets donated to a museum in, you know, in Liverpool or in Glasgow, for example, you know, there's streets in Glasgow that are named, you know, I think streets like Glassford Street and Ingram Street. They're, I think they're named after people that, you know, were tobacco lords and, you know, the merchant city is that's, you know, Glasgow started because of slavery and streets in there are named after slaves. And I think that should change because you're commemorating street, but don't get rid of the guy. Still yeah. keep the guy and say, look, yeah, this guy helped found the city of Glasgow and it was a different time back then. And he owned slaves and that's how he managed to profit. But mm-hmm. that's not acceptable now. Um, yeah, agreed. I think it was, I mean, what happened before was wrong. And Edward Colston just had a big statue and lots of things named after him. And no one really discussed the fact that he was a slaver. But it would be wrong now to do some Stalinist, you know, erasure of, of him from history altogether, because the worst, you know, the reason that the reason those bad things happened before was principally ignorance, or the reason those things were allowed to happen was ignorance, and we shouldn't allow ignorance to continue. And that will that the only way to stop that is to, for people to be well informed. Which bringing back to Hamilton is, I, I think Hamilton is is you know people criticise Hamilton, say where it's imperfect, terrific. Now you go and do better, yeah. And then we'll have Hamilton, whatever, and whatever you've done that's better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's... Let's let's let, let's let's go and do better. Whatever we've done, whatever we've learned, accept Hamilton as a fucking massive step forward. And if someone else comes up with another great show, film, 
television program which um, is it, it, which you know succeeds in 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 the areas where Hamilton didn't one hundred percent succeed, then we're all better off, aren't we? We're going to take a brief intermission now. Sorry to interrupt the flow. The second part of this month's episode is available to download now and includes the concluding part of the Adamson's Discussing Diversity in Film. Then we will have the regular hidden gem, which this month is Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days, our one that got away feature on Kurosawa's Mask of the Black Death, and a remake hate watch of the notorious 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. That's all for the first reel of this month's Double Reel Film Podcast. I wrote, recorded, mixed and edited the episode with the help of Anchor FM and Audacity. And as ever, anything that sounded good was down to them and everything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. I'll give you a full set of credits at the end of part two, including details on the films and features we've discussed this month. See you on the other side.